I hope your hearts are full after an opportunity to sing to God and tell Him how great we believe Him to be. And uh, now we come to His Word and we want to be uh, fed and to hear from Him, which is dependent upon the Holy Spirit empowering this time and our hearts being open and willing to receive and for Him to change and to transform us. So I hope your hearts are Ready for that, and uh, as we come back now to 1 Corinthians and the series that we have been in, and really the last uh, few weeks as we have been uh, studying from chapter 8, this whole matter of Christian liberty. Christian liberty deals with these gray areas that uh, God has not given clear direction as to whether or not uh, this particular lifestyle choice is... uh, appropriate for a Christian or not. And so we have all of these things that are in this realm of God's people having to decide whether they are going to participate or not. And Paul has uh, spent this, the entire chapter, uh, chapter 8 dealing with what he calls the strong and the weak. Now the strong are those who he uh, defines as the ones that have conscientious freedom to participate in uh, idle meat eating. This is the issue of chapter eight, whether or not Christians can eat idle meat. The strong are those that have freedom to do so. And the weak are those that do not have freedom to do so. And what Paul has said is that the strong are to, uh, defer to the weak, that they are to be willing to limit their freedom for the sake of their brother or sister who does not have conscientious freedom in this, and to not flaunt their freedom in a way that they might influence the person who does not have freedom to do what their conscience doesn't allow them to do. So, the strong are to, in love, limit their freedom. The weak, though, uh, are to not judge the strong for having freedom and even for participating in it. And so, this is the beauty of it. The strong do not look their noses down on the weak, The weak do not judge the strong, and that is how a congregation of Christians can go on for the Lord and for his glory in spite of differences that we may have in some of these Christian liberty areas. So we've been talking about eating idle meat, and I've had people saying, oh, come on, Pastor Steve, don't just talk about idle meat. Just, like, give us some of them, you know? List some of them. Tell us what you think about some of them. Nope. We're staying on idle meat because I don't know anybody that has an issue with eating idle meat in the church, and we create a paradigm to apply to the contemporary issues that we may have in disagreement. I have had a little bit of fun, though, or people have been having fun with me on it because I've, over these weeks, I've been out with people, dinner or whatever, and we'll go to eat, and they'll be like, is this idle meat that we're eating? So at least they're listening. Uh, I'm glad for that. The last time we were together, we were in chapter 9, verse 12, in which Paul challenges us with his own example, and he says, I endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. I endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way. And this is in the context of uh, chapters 8 through 11 which deal with this whole matter of Christian liberty. And Paul says, listen, these things are not more important than the gospel. 
And therefore, I'm willing to defer my liberty. He says at the end of chapter 8, I'll never eat meat again. I don't care about meat, idol meat. What I care about is the gospel going forth. This gospel that is reconciling sinners to their God through Christ who died for their sins. Now by faith, redeemed, justified, declared righteous, given eternal life. This is the big thing that God is doing. And Paul was about the big thing. And that's what we need to realize about these Christian liberty issues is that they are not the big thing. They're not. They are little things. And all too often, God's people make little things big things. And in doing that, they demean and diminish what is really the big thing, namely Christ. And I just if, this happens all the time. And I, I think that Satan must just get so much glee out of it to see God's people all, uh, you know, go into war about it. I could just sort of see Satan kind of like, idle meat. They're obsessing on idle meat. Jesus, you died for them. Now, I don't know if that happens or not, but I can see it happening. Why? Because it's so inappropriate for people that claim to be followers of Christ. We've embraced the big thing, and now we're letting some secondary thing become a big thing. The antidote to this is passion, passion for God, passion for the, for the Great Commission, passion for Christ, which puts these other things in their proper perspective. Now, we focused on verse 12 of chapter 9 last time, and we, we began chapter 9, we just went right to verse 12, which is kind of his main point, and what we're going to do today is we're now going to go back, now that we know what the main point is, we're going to go back to verses 1 through 11 and sort of see how Paul gets there and why he says uh, what he does. Two quick observations. The first is, is that Paul makes a lot of his points by asking questions. There are 14 questions in 10 verses. Now, you can make a point by asking a question, can't you? Good to see you're with me here this morning. I hope that keeps up. So that's the first thing. Secondly, is that Paul's purpose in chapter 9 is to give the Corinthians a living, breathing example of what he is trying to say to them in chapter 8. A living, breathing example of what it looks like to deny rights and freedoms and privileges for what is best for the kingdom and what is best for the gospel. And guess who he decides to put out there as the living, breathing example? Himself. His biography. His testimony is the example. In fact, he ends this whole discussion in chapter 11, verse 1, by saying, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So Paul establishes now in this chapter uh, his rights and privileges, uh, specifically three. Number one, that he is an apostle. Number two, that he has freedom in the areas of liberty. And number three, that he has the right to financial support. So let's begin to build this now. Paul's list of personal rights, first of all, his position. Look at verse one. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am an, not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. 
So he begins now with his position. He says, am I not an apostle? And the answer to that, of course, is yes, he is an apostle. Have I not seen the Lord? And yes, he had. In fact, what is he referring to there as far as seeing the Lord? What was that? His experience on the road to Damascus, that's right. And uh, do you remember where he was going on the road to Damascus? Damascus, that's right. He's uh, <laughs> going to Damascus. But on that road, he had a vision. Jesus Christ, the resurrected Christ, showed, revealed himself to Paul and set him aside as, a gen- as a, the apostle to the Gentiles. He has seen the Lord. That was one of the tests of being an apostle was that they had to see the resurrected Christ. We see that in Acts one twenty two, two thirty two, three fifteen, four thirty three. Did you get it? Get the tape. Uh, you can get those down. Have I not seen the Lord? And so, am I not an apostle? To be an apostle in the church is to have great distinction, to have rights and privileges as an apostle. He says in Ephesians 2, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that Jesus is the cornerstone of the church, but the foundation stones of the church are the apostles, and specifically their doctrine and their teaching, which to this day shape the nature of the church. So he begins with his apostleship, and he says, listen, if there's anybody that ought to say that I am an apostle, it ought to be you. After all, I came to you with the gospel. You, your faith exists because God used me to come to Corinth and to plant the church. So regardless of what other people say, of whether or not I'm an apostle, you should think I'm an apostle because you owe your faith to me. Now, why does he begin with his position? You know, if we met somebody like this and, and in a discussion they began with their position, we might think that they are on a power kick, Right? Like, hey, look at me, I'm an apostle, don't you forget it. Is that what Paul's doing here? No, it's not. He's building an argument, and it's the same argument that Jesus uses in Mark 10, 45, when he said, for even the Son of Man, actually, let me backtrack. Remember in Mark 10, they're having this debate. The apostles, the disciples at that time, are debating which of them is the greatest. And Jesus says to them, Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now think of the logic of that. Even the Son of Man, okay, so Son of Man, Son of God, Messiah, Jesus, second person of the Trinity, even Christ did not come in order for himself to be served and for him to exercise all his rights and privileges. He did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. It's an argument from the greatest to the least. He's saying, basically, that if, if the second person of the Trinity did not live on this earth in order to be served, but gave himself, how much more should average Joe Christians like you and me have a mindset of wanting to serve? So he argues from the great to the least. That's what Paul is doing here. He's saying, am I not an apostle? Do I not have rights and distinctions and privileges in the church? Of course, yes, you do. Yet I am not exercising them. I am setting them aside for the sake of the gospel. And the argument is that if the apostle is willing to do that, how much more should average Joe Christians like you and me be willing to set aside our perception of rights and privileges in order for what is best for 
the gospel. That's what he's saying. My position. Secondly, is freedom. Okay, his freedom. The first question in the chapter is, am I not free? Now, the reason that Paul does this is he doesn't want the Corinthians to think that the reason that he's not participating, he's not eating idle meat, or he's not doing some of these other things, is that he doesn't have freedom to do it. He's saying, listen, I'm on the side of the strong. I don't have a conscientious problem with eating idle meat. Bring it out, and the A1, I'm good with it. So don't think that I'm not free. I am free in these matters. I'm not arguing this because I don't feel free to do it. There's another reason. Something more important. And then thirdly is, and this is his main point in this chapter, and you'll see that verses 3 through uh, 14 are, deal with this, is his right to financial support. His right to financial support. He says in verse 3, this is my defense to those who would examine me. You know, we, we probably would like to think that to be the apostle would be, you know, just a minister in the church. And um, how, how's, how's that song go? Um, where nary has heard a discouraging word and the skies are not cloudy all day. That's not America the Beautiful. What is that song? I forget the name of it. You make no sense to me in saying what you just did right there. I have no idea what you just said. But apparently you all know, and that's fine. I don't need to know the name of it. Um, We'd like to think that to be the apostle, everybody would be like, oh, the apostle Paul, whatever you say, you're so great, you're the wonderful leader, you're the great teacher, whatever you want. No, the apostle Paul was regularly under fire from people in the church who disparaged him, who didn't think he was enough this and enough that and all the rest. And here we have him saying, this is my defense. The Greek word there, apologia, we get the word apologetics from it, the defense of the gospel. He says, Listen, this is my response to those of you that are criticizing me or who would want to examine me. Here's why some of them were saying he wasn't an apostle. The apostle Paul did not receive financial support. Rather, he supported himself by making tents. He was a tent maker. And we actually have this in uh, the book of Acts that tells the story of how the Apostle Paul at Corinth uh, was, was a tent maker. Here, here, here it is, chapter 18, verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens. Athens is where he had the famous Mars Hill speech that he gave and before the Greek philosophers. He leaves Athens. He goes to Corinth. So this is Corinth, the same city that this letter is written to. And he found a Jew named Aquila. Oh, now there's a famous Bible name, a native of Pontus recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. So it's Aquila and Priscilla. You know, if, if you're dating right now and your names rhyme, can I just tell you that's a sign from God that like, you don't even have to pray about it anymore. Just get married. Aquila and Priscilla Because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked. For they were tent makers by trade. So there you have it. They were tent makers. Literally tent makers. This word has become in common 
church language, missions, and church planting, uh, tent making, to refer to anybody that has a job that they're working basically enough to support their real effort, which is to give themselves to missions. So maybe you've heard of people that, hey, we're going to go and have a tent making ministry in South America or whatever it is. That means that they have some job that they're doing, but their real aim is to, is to uh, serve the gospel. Uh, Pastor Gary, on our, on our pastoral staff, his daughter and son-in-law are in China, and they are doing a tent-making ministry there. It's very common. Lots and lots of people do it around uh, the world. Paul literally, though, made tents. It was manual labor. And here's the issue. The Corinthians and the Greeks despised manual labor. It was beneath them. We're the Greeks, we're the philosophers, we're the very wise, we're the wealthy, we're the successful. We don't do manual labor. And they looked down on anybody who did manual labor. And so for Paul to claim to be an apostle and to do manual labor and to make tents seemed to them to be incongruent. Wait a second. Nobody that's an apostle is going to be making tents. It's kind of like, if you can imagine, because I think, you know, there might be a similar rub for, for us. If, if you imagine, let's just say the Apostle Paul showed up here one, one, one day, and, he, and he's like, hey, I'd li- I, Northwest Indiana, I'd love to minister here at Bethel Church. We'd be like, okay, well, let's take a vote on that. How many for the Apostle Paul uh, leading the church now? All in favor, say aye. And I'd be with you going, aye. <laughs> I'll now go pastor fourth grade or something, and we'll just let Paul do his thing here. It'd be great. I'd sit in the front row, notes out. That he's the man. We say, hey, we're going to support you. That's the least we can do. We're, we're so happy that you're here. He goes, listen, I'm not accepting any support. I'm going to get a job. And we're like, oh, okay, well, you're the apostle, so that's fine. So this coming week, you are at the McDonald's, uh, kitty corner to the church here, and you go through the drive-thru, and you order your Big Mac and fries and supersize the Coke, and they say, uh, there's a voice on there that says, uh, That'll be uh, $4.53. And you're like, oh, okay. So you pull through the drive-thru and you come to the window and, and, and uh, a hand is extended and you look up and there's the Apostle Paul. And he's like, could you help me out? I haven't figured out how many quarters are in a dollar. Is that like a drachma? What's going on? <laughs> and uh, thank you. And... Uh, Would you pull away from that possibly and think to yourself, I don't know if he's really the Apostle Paul because I can't see the Apostle Paul working at McDonald's. It just doesn't seem like, and that's kind of what was going on at Corinth. I mean, Paul, Paul's working at Tents Are Us and they're like, I have a hard time believing that he is an apostle if he's, if he's doing that kind of thing. And some were saying that he actually wasn't. And so Paul's response now is to establish a theology of why those who minister the gospel have the right to financial support. And by doing this, he's establishing why he himself has the right to financial support. And the reason that he does this is so that his denial of financial support is in no way an indication that he doesn't have the right to financial support. He just has a bigger thing in mind. 
Now, this is helpful to us. Some of you maybe have kind of wondered, now, why is it that we have these pastors and staff people, and why are we, you know, why do we support them? Is that like in the Bible somewhere? Well, here you go. Here now is your opportunity to see where the Bible teaches this. And he begins now by saying in verse 4, do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as the other apostles do and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas, another name for Peter? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Now notice in the first three verses, the word that is repeated is right. And the answer to each question is yes. So does Paul have a right to food and drink? Yes. Does he have a right to enough support so that he could travel with a believing wife? And the answer to that is yes. Now, that's an interesting one because Paul was single. He was probably widowed. We're not exactly sure. He did not have a wife that traveled along with him. So he's speaking a little bit theoretically. But do I not have a right to enough support for my wife to travel with me? Which he says that the apostles, the brothers of Jesus, and Peter did. In their itinerant ministry, as they traveled around, they brought their wives with them. And presumably their children as well, at the expense of the church. Now this is a fun little section here, I think. Because uh, it's a little bit of a glimpse into the apostolic ministry of the first century. And we don't get very many glimpses into it, like personal glimpses, but here is, here is one of them. Now, first of all, Jesus, or Paul mentions the brothers of Jesus. How many of you realized that Jesus had brothers? And not only brothers, but also sisters, at least two, it's plural. I would have to think that most of us, and honestly, if you'd have asked me before this week, right now it's on top of my head, I could totally come up with it. If you said, name the brothers of Jesus, I'm not sure that I could list their names. But it seems to me that if Jesus is our Savior, our Lord, our Messiah, you know, our future hope and all of that, that we probably ought to know his brother's names. Doesn't, don't you think? I think that that's certainly reasonable. I mean, some, you're going to meet them someday in heaven. And, and it, you know, if you're like, oh, I didn't even know Jesus had brothers. You know, they what? So if, if, if that happens, you know, don't tell them you're from Bethel Church. Pick another, <laughs> pick another church in the area that you say that you went to. Okay, so here now is an opportunity for us as a church to learn the names of Jesus' brothers. By the way, these are half-brothers. Okay, these are half-brothers because Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. So these are through Mary brothers to Jesus. And so here, here are their names. Let's learn them together. First of all, we have James. And this is easy to remember because this is the James that wrote the book of James in the New Testament. So there's James. Then there's Joseph. And we can kind of wonder how he got his name, of course. Simon and ironically, Judas. Now, we don't know him so much as Judas. This is the brother that wrote what we call the book of Jude, which is the little letter right before uh, Revelation. So four brothers, and on top of that, at least two sisters. 
So despite what some people think regarding the perpetual virginity of Mary, she gave birth to at least six additional children after Jesus was born. And I have to also tell you that the picture of the apostles traveling with their wives has been a little bit unsettling to me this week. I just, like, I never, I haven't thought about it that way. Like, when I think of Peter, I just think of Peter. And when I think of, you know, Andrew, I just think of Andrew. And I don't know if it's because you look at the Da Vinci painting, Last Supper, and it's just them individually somehow. But in my mind, I just haven't envisioned these guys with wives and all, you know, families and all that. I don't know. It's just been a little bit freaky uh, to me this week. And then I got thinking, like, I wonder what their wives were like. Like, who married Peter? Like, what got into her to marry Peter? And, like, did John's wife and Peter's wife, like, did they get along, have lunch, go shopping together? It's just kind of a whole side of that that we don't really know that much about. Here's what we can know, though, about the apostles' wives is that all of them played the piano and worked in children's ministry. So (laughs) we say that with confidence. (laughs) so paul says don't barnabas and i have a right to the same thing that's provided to all the other apostles and their wives and their families and the brothers of jesus and the answer is yes you have a right to that of course and now he develops why this right applies and gives us a theology of financial support now Think of this, apparently money was somehow a point of contention in the first century church. It's hard to believe, isn't it, that money would be a point of contention, but apparently it was. And Paul sees the need to develop a little bit of a theology and to teach the people as to why this, why ministers of the gospel should be supported by God's people. And he has basically three reasons why this is the case. Here's the first one. It's the normal pattern of life. The normal pattern of life. Look at verse 7. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? So he gives three examples. Everyday life, a soldier, a farmer, and a shepherd. A soldier has a right to the spoils of war. A farmer has a right to eat the food that comes from the the field that he has cultivated. And the shepherd has the right to drink milk from the flock that he is overseeing. And Paul says, that's just normal pattern of life. And the same pattern applies spiritually. That those who have sown spiritual things have a right to reap material things. It's just normal. Secondly, is the teaching of Scripture. Look at verse 8. Do I say these things on human authority? In other words, am I just saying this? No. Does not the law say the same? And the law in the New Testament is referring to the Old Testament. For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? 
It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. So Paul here now, proof texts from the Old Testament, specifically from Deuteronomy 24, in which God gave Israel a command about the way that they should care for their animals, and it had to do with, with oxen and with grain. And what they would do, this was known as uh, treading or I think thrashing also, they would spread the grain out on the ground, and somehow they had to separate the, the grain from the rest of the plant. And so they would get oxen, and the oxen would walk all over it and crack it and spread it, and that's how they would shift it. In fact, we have a, a, uh, came across a picture that kind of gives a little bit of a visual there. Okay? So there's the oxen, the poor oxen, laboring, working, sweating in the hot sun, producing grain for the village. God says, you know, the oxen are making the grain. Don't muzzle the ox, which keeps him from eating. Don't muzzle the ox. Don't keep him from eating the very thing that he is himself producing. Don't just ride him into the ground. He has a right to eat it. And Paul says, was it only for animals that God was concerned? Or was there not a more deeper spiritual truth? And he says, yes, there is. The minister has the right to what his labors are producing. The third reason is the teaching of Jesus. Look at verse 14. We kind of jump ahead here. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Now, you might be thinking to yourself right now, okay, where did Jesus say that? I don't remember that. Well, here's where he says it. Luke 10, Jesus sends out 72, two by two, and gives them specific commands. And you might remember some of these. They were to go into the town and they were to stay with people. And if people didn't welcome, they would shake the dust off of their sandals and their feet. And they were to go on to somewhere else. One of the commands that he gave to them is that they were to eat in the homes where they are staying and where they are ministering. And here's the quote from Luke 10 verse 7. The laborer deserves his wages. Paul uses the same reference in his argument in 1 Timothy 5 18. Here are some other passages if you want to read it. Matthew 10, 9 and 10. 1 Thessalonians 2, 6 and 7. 2 Thessalonians 3, 9. So Paul takes these three reasons and says, this is just the way that it is. This is the way that it ought to be. So for some of you that maybe have kind of wondered about this aspect of the body life of our church and wondered why we do what we do, now you know. There is... A quick summary, and there's more teaching on this in our series in First Timothy. We actually went fairly slowly through that, and you could check that out on your own. This also is an opportunity for me to do something that uh, we probably don't do near enough. And just on behalf of the staff, I want to say to the church, thank you for being a biblical church in this regard. Thank you for what you do to take care of us, which allows us to be focused on the shepherding of the church. So thank you very much. Did you get that? Okay, good. Keep it up. Let's keep it up. Now here's the irony and our point here this morning, is that Paul spends these 11 verses establishing that he has a right as an apostle to... Uh, bring along a believing wife. 
to freedoms and privileges as an apostle, to financial support from the churches. And so he says all of these things, and then he gets to verse 12, which we studied before, in which he says, but you know what? I do not exercise my rights to these things. Why? I endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. The apostle Paul, who of anybody had rights, willingly sets them aside because he had something that was more important to him. Something that he was aiming for more than these other things. Namely, he wanted to see sinners saved. He wanted to see God glorified. He wanted Christ and the gospel to go forth. And so it was even more important to him than even money. And you know, when you, when you have somebody that has something more important to them than money, that gets people's attention, doesn't it? Well, now that's something that you don't see every day. And yet he sets it aside and he says, I want Christ to go forward. And I set, set aside my rights to these things. My dear friends, I want this passage to challenge us here today. Is it only the Apostle Paul that needs to have a kingdom and missional mindset? No, he is laying his own example out as a challenge to us today. A challenge to us to look at our own lives and our own priorities and ask ourselves, do I have a similar mindset where to me the most important thing is not the idle meat and not the liberty issue and not even the freedoms and rights and privileges that I think that I might have, but that the gospel would go forth, that God would save sinners, that people would be reconciled to their God and given eternal life. What is more important than that in this life? Paul would say there's nothing. How about you? How about you? I like to use the analogy, and it's a very simple one. It's very, very simple. But I'm told these are the ones that tend to stick. So maybe this will be helpful. I'd like to use the analogy of the open and the closed hand. Open hand. These are things that are ours but we don't try to protect them. We don't live for them. We have them held in an open hand. And God, you can do whatever you want in these things. As opposed to the closed hand. The closed hand are things that we view as our own rights and privileges, possessions, and nobody is going to take them away from us. I am going to self-manage this. I am going to control this. This is mine. I would suggest that all of our lives could be described in two categories. Things that we hold with an open hand, things that we hold with a closed hand. For the Apostle Paul, he held everything with an open hand. Right to a believing wife? Yeah, but open hand. Right uh, to financial support? Yeah, but you know what? I'm not holding on to it. Open hand. There wasn't anything in the closed hand. Why? Because the gospel was the most important thing. And I just wonder here this morning if, well, idle meat may not be the issue. There are all kinds of issues that get ahead in our priority list of living for the kingdom of God and living for God, loving him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That kind of living. And I got thinking about, in American Christianity, what are, those, what are some of those things that we hold tightly so here's some. First of all, time. 
time. Now, I know some of you right now are going, oh, don't even bring that up. It's my time. And Pastor Steve, I don't care. Whatever you say right now, right? Because our time is valuable to us. Don't infringe on my time. It's my time. Well, guess what serving in the Great Commission requires? Time. Often inconvenient time. Time that I maybe have mentally set aside for things that I kind of wanted to do. Things like overtime work. Things like a hobby. Playing a game. Watching other people play a game. My family. Time. We hold on to time so tightly. It's amazing to me, again, from my little uh, perch as a pastor where I sort of get to see the church at work. It's amazing to me how there are some people, they just have so much time for the Lord. Like they're just around a lot. They're involved in things a lot. Their name pops up all the time. You know, we get reports of God blessing in some particular area or way. And all, there's that name again. They're involved in that. They're doing that. They got lots of time for the Lord. It's also amazing to me how there are many people that don't have any time. Oh, no, I, I, can't, be, I, can't, do, I can't do that. I can't serve in that way. Well, I, we're too, way too busy. I mean, the kids got games and the kids have got games and the kids have got games. I can't serve Jesus. No. No. And I don't like what you're insinuating there that maybe I should think about giving him time because it is my time. My time. I think that there are some of us who are clenching our time so tightly. Do you want to stand before God someday and say, I didn't have time? I didn't have time. Seems to me we all have the same amount of time, don't we? 24 hours a day. Anybody got more than 24 hours in a day? Anybody got less than 24 hours in a day? I, I think we're pretty much all living in the same clock, aren't we? It's just our priorities. Time. Here's a big one. Our envisioned ideal life and future. Envisioned life and future. I think if we were honest, the average American, the typical American Christian in church wants just enough Christianity that they are assured that they're going to heaven. So that they can then spend their time and energy on the things that they really want to pursue. Like career advancement, having nice moral children who get good grades, comfortable living, secure future, retirement, whatever. I want to know I'm going to heaven. And I want to make sure that I have all these other things as well. And guess what happens? God does not want us to be comfortable. God's goal is not comfortable American 
Christian living. God's goal is to conform us to the likeness of his son. He wants to create in us the attitude and the mindset of Christ. And guess what God the Father did to God the Son to make him perfect? Hebrews says, suffering, trials, troubles. And so in our life, when we are holding on to this perfect life and the way I think things ought to work out and all these things... Life happens, and God sovereignly and providentially, things happen, and it creates suffering in our lives. And when we are holding on to this envisioned ideal future, now something happens that doesn't fit that. Crisis happens in my faith. And I think to myself, wait a second, I, I don't know that I can trust God if this is what's happening. This is not the way that I envisioned it to be. And God in the trial is forcing our hands open in areas of our life that we want to hold on to. Have you experienced that? My parents are ministering to a family right now that is in crisis. This family, it's really more like the mother and the daughter that are in crisis. And it's the daughter's fault. Because she has made the grievous error of deciding to serve Jesus as a missionary somewhere in the world. And the mom is incensed about this. Why? Because her picture of the way this should be is her daughter marrying a nice young man and settling into a house a few doors down and us having little parties with the kids growing up and little kids' programs that we get to videotape and just kind of doing this ideal life. Why would you ruin my picture? And the daughter's response could be, because, Mom, there are people that are dying and going to hell all over the world every day. And if somebody doesn't tell them the gospel... They will not be saved. And I think God wants me to go do that. But honey, that is not the way that I saw it happening. And this family is just holding on to the way that I think this ought to be. The picture. Are you there? Have you had that? Something in your life now suddenly... uh, Going a direction that you do not, did not, would never want it to happen? And what is that revealing in those moments? What I hold with the open hand and what I am clenching with the closed hand. Envision ideal life. There are so many things we could put here. This is sort of a little bit of a catch-all here. Money, health, control, other idols. You know, what do we hold on to tighter than money? You know, close fist. You ever walk down the street holding a $20 bill like this? Nobody does that. You'll never see anybody doing that with a $20 bill. We're like, you know. Why? Because we love money. We love to clench money. We call it our money. Our health. We all want to think, of course, that we're going to live forever. And if you ask somebody, they would say, oh, no, that, oh, someday we'll die, but just not anytime soon, right? And then we get the call, and guess what? We're the one that has some kind of problem. And, oh, isn't that a different thing? 
You know, we pray for people. We hear about people that have these problems. Oh, yes, we'll pray for them. But now when it's you, it's a whole other matter. It's like the difference between major surgery and minor surgery. Minor surgery is any surgery somebody else is having. Major surgery is any surgery you're having, right? Now it's personal. And now all of a sudden there can be this faith crisis. Like, wait a second. This is not what I envisioned. This is not what I wanted. I've been holding on to my health and this view of life with a closed fist and this disease or this cancer or whatever it is, this doesn't fit the picture and trials force our hand open and we don't want to. We want to hold on to it. Control. We want to think that we control our life, that we can manage our life and manage our future. But guess what? What do we actually control? Nothing. We don't control anything. You have no more control over what's going to happen to you this afternoon than I do. We don't know, but we live with this kind of delusion that I can manage and I can control and we hold on to things in our life so tightly. And this is why Paul's admonition here is so critical and why we, what we're trying to do here at Bethel is to mobilize a congregation of people that not just in word, but in action and in deed are living with a priority that there are things more important to me than my time and then my ideal future or the American dream or my money or my health or whatever else you want to put there, that we are passionate for God and passionate for the gospel. And more important to me than my stuff is that people would come to faith in Christ and to be saved and that Jesus Christ would be glorified by it. That's what we want more than anything else. And when that mindset captures us, guess what happens? And it is such an uphill battle for all of us. I'm in it with you as well. Because here we are today, we sing songs after it is well. All of us are like, okay, everything's you, God. It's all yours. And the moment we step out of here, we get into our car, and we go spend our money and at lunch, and we go to our house, and we listen to radio and TV and all the rest that are saying to us, live for what you can have, hold on to it, do all that you can to keep it. We get into that mindset, and we forget that Jesus died for sin, and he is actually alive right now, and he is coming back. And this whole thing of human history is winding up and we're all going to be dead someday. I had a guy tell me this week, he says, you know, none of us get out of here alive. (laughs) It's true. And yet we hold on to things like we can. I was mowing the yard yesterday and I was just thinking about the message and the thought came to me. I said, you know, I just thought death is what, what death is, is, is God just forcing everybody's hands open. We want to think that we can hold, but in the end, nobody holds on to anything. Just, you know, like that. That's what God does. So why do we live this way? We, we claim to believe. We claim it. But do our priorities display it? Does our life reflect it, actually? What are we passionate for? And Paul says, listen, I got all these things that are my rights. I don't care. They are not significant to me. I set them aside 
so that the gospel can go forth. Here's what he said in Philippians 1.21. For me to live is Christ. To die is gain. Even his own life he held with an open hand. Or as Jim Elliott, my hero, said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. These are men and examples to us of people who lived with this kind of radical thought that Jesus and the gospel is actually true. And I pray that God would take out of our mindset this sicko American thought that wants to live for here and to hold on to it. And that we would become a church increasingly radically believing that the gospel is true and worth our every effort. We need that. God is not glorified. God is not glorified when we hold on to this world and when we prioritize things over the gospel. He is glorified when our mindset is, God, you can take these from me because I believe that you will do with them what you do is better. I want what you want. Therefore, everything is yours. I have trusted you with my eternity. Think of this. I have trusted you with my eternity. I can trust you with these things as well. Christian, do you realize you, you are banking hell on the fact that God will be true to his promises and give you heaven and a new earth and eternal life. You're banking on that. Because if there's some other religion that's right or you can earn your way to heaven or whatever way you want to craft that you can somehow avoid judgment from God that's better than the gospel, then you better go do that. We are banking everything on the promises of God. And therefore, it is well with our soul, right? If you can trust him for your eternity, why can't you trust him for the trial that you're in this week? Why can't you show as best you can, we're frail in this, but as best you can that these things are things you hold with an open hand? You can. And God is glorified when his people do it. And that's living with an open hand. That's living with eternity values in view. That's what Paul lived. And I would add, that's the way that Jesus lived. His whole life was with an open hand. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Our Savior, totally open. How much more should those who follow him, again, the argument from the greater to the less, if that's the way that Jesus lived, how much more should average Joes like you and I pursue the same thing? And as we do, God is glorified. We are satisfied. And Jesus Christ is magnified. And may that be true this week in our lives. Amen.